God, I, I feel your, I feel a need, Lord, to cry out for your revelation, to communicate your love as a finite human being to finite human beings. Lord, there's so much that can be missed. And so I just pray, God, for a revelation of your love. Holy Spirit, come and fill each one of us. God, open our eyes to a greater dimension of your love, God, your, the breadth of your love, God, the length, the height of your love, Lord, the depth of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been going through a series on knowing God, and tonight I'd like for us to examine this question, do we know God's love? Now, if we were to think about the, the world, those outside of the church, maybe people who are here today who don't know God, it would, they may answer that they, they don't know God's love. They don't have an understanding of God's love, or maybe they don't think God is love. And if that is you today, I hope that God opens your eyes to his extravagant love. But I'm assuming that here tonight, most of you know God's love, at least a, a dimension of it. But my hope and my prayer is that God would reveal a greater dimension of his love. For the first two years of, of my wife and I, our marriage, I, I thought I knew what love was. <laughs> oh, man, I had the butterflies, and it was easy to love. You know, you're feeling good about marriage. You're fe- I mean, I thought this was easy. Marriage is easy. And as a veteran of marriage of four years, uh, <laughs> I can tell you that uh, these last couple years, God has been showing me a, a greater dimension of what love really is. <laughs> couple kids later, couple arguments later, I'm the one always getting the arguments, it's not my, my wife, but I recognize that God is pulling back layers of what love really is. And tonight I'd like to look at the story of Jonah, a story that's probably familiar to most of you, but especially the last chapter. And then also look at a few verses that Paul prayed for the church in Ephesians, in Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, in the hopes that we might have a richer knowledge of God's love. So if you'll turn in your Bible to Jonah chapter 4, verse 1 and 11, 1 through 11, we'll read that together. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to, flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live." And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. 
And he and the son, I'm sorry, and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 through 19, it says, so that Christ, this is Paul praying to the Ephesian church, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This passage, Jonah chapter 4, starts out giving us an indication of where Jonah's heart is. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Why was Jonah so angry? Well, many of you know the story. Jonah was called to a wicked city, a city, Nineveh. And in chapter 1, verse 2, we get a view of what God thinks of Nineveh. He tells Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Nineveh was a great city. It was great in number. There was 120,000 people. It was bigger than the whole kingdom of Judah at that time. It was great in size. It was a three days journey in breadth, 30 to 60 miles in diameter. The walls of Nineveh were 100 feet in height and built on a rock foundation. They had 1,500 watchtowers around these walls. Each watchtower was 200 feet high. Everything about this mighty city said that she would last for centuries. They're also great in wealth. The city was located on two trade routes on the eastern bank of the Tigris River. And 70 years after Jonah would preach his message, the ruler of Assyria, the city that Nineveh was a part of, would build himself a palace that bore the epithet the palace without rival. It was great, city of Nineveh, and military. It would dominate that region, the ancient Near East, for over 100 years. But it wasn't the greatness of Nineveh that got God's attention. It was its evil. Its violence. The palace that Sennacherib built years later had sculptures of naked Judeans impaled on poles. The Assyrians commonly practiced impalement. They dismembered, decapitated, and disfigured their defeated peoples. It was a city of, of pride. God speaks to what he thinks of the city in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 15. He says, this is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. It was a city of idolatry. They worshipped a god named Nebo, who was obviously not the true god. And so perhaps we have a better understanding of why Jonah was angry. He was called to an oppressive, idolatrous, barbaric, prideful city. This, as a good Hebrew 
prophet would have been the last place that Jonah would want to go. And interestingly enough, early in his ministry, it's a small phrase in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 25, that talks about what Jonah's ministry was like before Nineveh. It was describing the reign of Jeroboam II, a very wicked king in Israel. And his military conquest, he expanded the nation of Israel. And it says in 2 Kings 18.25, he restored the border of Israel according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah. So Jonah's early ministry was predicting the conquest of Jeroboam II. He was a national hero, a true Israelite prophet, comfortable in his ministry in his homeland, content to never leave the boundaries of Israel. So in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, he prays to the Lord and he says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. God called Jonah to Nineveh. And Jonah doesn't want to go. So he, instead he goes 2,500 miles in the opposite direction to Tarshish. God's not going to let him off the hook that easy, though. Causes a storm, and Jonah, after the lots fall on him, realizes that he's the, he knows he's the reason. Now the sailors knows, know that he's the reason for the storm. And so Jonah tells them to throw him out of the boat, and he gets swallowed by a fish. And at this point, Jonah is in a fish, Jonah chapter 2, and he's praying to God. And we get a picture of maybe this guy has finally figured it out. His disobedience. He's going to have a change of heart. And his prayer in chapter 2 starts off really well. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. But then it just goes all downhill from there. In Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, there are 21 personal pronoun references to himself. And only one reference to the Ninevites. And get, get what he says to the Ninevites. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. <laughs> Jonah thinks he is going to a situation that's already sealed. This is a mere formality. He's going to pronounce judgment on this city. And you can hear his words dripping with irony and self-righteousness as he concludes his prayer. And he says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Until the people of Nineveh repent. In chapter 3, they fast. They put on sackcloth and ashes. And to Jonah's shock, they actually listen. And everyone from the peasants to the king humble themselves and repent, and God forgives. And at this point, maybe we should pause and ask ourselves that original question, do we know God's love? God loved the Ninevites so much that he was willing to send a messenger to save them from what they deserve, from their cruelty, to save them from eternal damnation. And does this extravagant and incomprehensible love that God shows this people fit within the construct of our view of what love is and who God loves. For Jonah, it, it doesn't. Jonah is furious. The latter part of verse 2 in Jonah 4, he says, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love 
and relenting from disaster. Jonah was a good Hebrew prophet. He knew that phrase. That phrase was all throughout the Old Testament ten times. It was first uttered by God to Moses when he was revealing himself to Moses in Exodus 34. Abounding in love refers to the covenant that God had for his people, Israel. The attribute expressed itself in redemption from sin. It encompasses the qualities of kindness and loyalty and unfailing love. But for Jonah, it's always, it was always directed towards Israel. And now he's seeing the characteristics of God, that steadfast love being directed to his enemy. And Jonah's not having any of it. He says in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. If Jonah's not going to get his way, he doesn't want God to get his way either. It'd be better for him to die. So what does a loving God do with this pouty, self-righteous, me-centered prophet who's throwing a tantrum that would put most two-year-olds to shame? The Lord asks a question. He doesn't strike him with lightning. He doesn't open up the ground like Korah's rebellion. He doesn't strike him dead like Ananias and Sapphira. He asks a question, do you do well to be angry? And you can hear the tenderness and the compassion and the love of God in this question. He's giving Jonah a moment to pause and to reflect on his selfishness. But Jonah's not taking him up on it. He goes outside the city, sits under a shade that he makes to see what God will do. Maybe the Ninevites' bad will outweigh this one moment of repentance. So God again responds with love and compassion, and he's interested in, in Jonah's shade. It says in verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And Jonah, at, at last, for the first time in the book of Jonah, is glad for a plant. That phrase means literally Jonah rejoiced over the vine with great rejoicing. He wasn't just happy. He was deliriously happy. He has more concern for a plant than he does for the people that God has called him to reach. Verse 7, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. God is, his patience is running thin with Jonah so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And at this point, Jonah's asking, is God really loving? He had learned in Jewish Sunday school that he was, but it didn't appear so in that moment. And perhaps you and I can identify lest we try to distance ourselves from this stubborn Hebrew prophet. The long hours commuting to a job we don't like, with a project team that rubs us the wrong way, with a boss who's passed us over promotion after promotion. God, are you loving? Or what about day after day, shuttling kids to soccer practice, cooking dinner, folding laundry for our spouse without a single thank you? 
or year after year going to sleep in an empty bed wondering why God hasn't answered our prayer and provided a loving spouse. This is Jonah's issue. He thought he knew God's love, but now he's confronted with the full dimension of God's love, a love that contradicts how Jonah loves, and he'd rather die. What is God doing? Well, at this point, I'd like us to look at that passage in Ephesians that we looked at at the beginning. Ephesians 3.17, Paul is praying many years after Jonah. He's praying to, an Ephesian, to the Ephesian church. And he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. God is doing in Jonah what Paul prayed God would do in the Ephesians. He's expanding their understanding of his love. And he's using an interesting tool to do it, discomfort. As Jonah is baking under the sun and looking out at his enemies, repenting, God is using Jonah's discomfort to show him the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of his love. He was showing Jonah the breadth of his love while he walked the day's journey through the city of Nineveh, calling on the people to repent. He was showing the length of his love, a city who Jonah hated hundreds of miles away from his hometown as they humbled themselves and repented. He was showing Jonah the height of his love as he caused the plant to provide shade over his head while he moped. He was showing Jonah the depths of his love as he looked down God from his throne in heaven and forgave that wicked city. In Jonah's case, he had confused God's love as being as narrow as Israel, as small as the leaf that had given him shade, as short as his temper, and as shallow as his concern for the Ninevites. And God loved Jonah too much to let him continue with this myopic view of God's love. It's why he sent Jonah to Nineveh to give him a front row view of his love. Verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. When we read scripture, we want to insert ourselves as the heroes of the stories that we love, the courageous David who defeats Goliath, the faith-filled Abraham or the deliverer Moses who leads his people out of Egypt. But perhaps a better comparison for us is Jonah. We confuse our happiness as a barometer of God's love for us. In reality, God's love extends over the cubicle where our angry boss sits across the kitchen table to that ungrateful family member and fills the empty place on the other side of that lonely bed at night. He will use a big fish, stormy seas, and scorching sun and a person or people we really don't like to show the breadth and length and height and depth of his love. God's love has even extended beyond the, board, the story of Jonah. In case we have any doubt whether God loves us this way, we should consider the better Jonah. 
instead of Jonah's refusal to go to Nineveh and love his enemies, Christ came to this earth and died for them and for us. Instead of Jonah's disobedience that led to three days in a fish, Christ's obedience led to three days in a grave. And instead of Jonah's collapse into self-pity, Christ was exalted on the cross and resurrected by the Spirit of God. If God loved us enough to send his own son, how can we not love that boss, that family member, or the person or people we see as our Ninevites? And this story, the book of Jonah, ends, with an abru- ends abruptly with a question. God asking Jonah, should he pity Nineveh? Jonah's myopic version of God's love has been confronted by the vastness of what really God's love is. And we're left wondering, what did Jonah do? And perhaps God is asking us through this text, Now that you've seen my love, what will you do? God's desire is that we would see the breadth, length, height, and depth of his love, that we might love others with the same intensity so they might know the love of God. Let's pray.